right, so if you're visiting with us today, just like to let you know that our norm here at Grace Life Church is to preach systematically through books of the Bible. It's not that you have to do it that way, but we think that's the best way to basically get the whole counsel of God's Word. It keeps the preacher from being able to, to camp on whatever um, his favorite verses are and be able to ignore uh, the hard text. In a way, going through a confession like the 1689 Confession does the same thing. It forces you to deal with, with a wide variety of doctrine. But that's what we're doing is we're in the process of adopting that as the official um, teaching position of our church. And so we thought it would be best just to, to, to walk through the confession uh, week by week. So today we come to chapter 19, um, dealing with the law of God. And as you can see on the slide, this is, will be part one, um, I think part one of two. So we'll, we'll finish this up next week. John Piper said this about the law, and I think this is a really fitting quote. He says, One of my very great desires for our church is that we be a people who understand the law of God and fulfill it in the spirit of love. The law which God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai a few months before bringing the people out of Egypt has been the victim of some very bad press in the past several hundred years. My guess is that there's a good deal of confusion in our minds when we read on the one hand in Romans 6.14, You are no longer under the law but under grace. On the other hand, in Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And so that reflects uh, my heart's desire pastorally is that we would be a people that understand and love God's law and fulfill it in a spirit of love. I think all of us recognize that we live in the midst of a time where there's a lot of confusion out there about what the gospel is. We recognize there's false gospels in places like Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Roman Catholic Church. And we even recognize that there's a false gospel in professing Christian churches, right? There's things like easy beliefism, which basically says to be a follower of Christ, all you have to do is mentally assent to some certain things about the gospel, and then, hey, welcome to the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter that you don't see any actual life change. So what they do is they separate the fact that, that they would say that, well, Jesus can be your Savior without being your Lord. Something that we don't, we don't see that kind of dichotomy in Scripture, right? You're either, he's either your Savior and your Lord, or he's neither one. And so what they do is that they separate, really, the, the gospel call from a life of holiness, a life of piety, as Brother Corey um, led us through in our time of confession. And so when I was preaching through the book of Galatians, I thought a right understanding of the law was so important that I did a three-part series on the law at that point. And I went back and looked, and that was three years ago when I did that. And so I recognize that there's actually quite a few of you that weren't here at that time. And maybe for some of you that were here, you might be among those, like Pastor Piper spoke of, that still maybe have a good deal of confusion in your minds when it comes to God's law. And so my hope is, is that we go through chapter 19 of the Confession this week and next week that will help clear away that fog and bring some additional clarity and understanding um, to God's law. This is another chapter that we see in the confession where there's great unity between the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, and the 1689 Confession. So our particular Baptist forefathers, they were united with the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists on this understanding of the law. So as I said, this is an area where I think it's important that we take a deeper dive, so we're going to be spending um, two weeks here on this part of the confession. So the outline of the confession basically looks like this. You look at paragraphs 1 through 5, and what you see is 
the law and the history of redemption. So basically, it, it's kind of walking through redemptive history and laying out the law within that context. And then the last two paragraphs, paragraph 6 and 7, deal with the law in the life of the Christian. And then today, we're just going to get to the first two paragraphs of that. I promise, I think we'll get through the, the, the last five next week. But what I want to do is, this is such an area where there's misunderstanding within the, the evangelical church that I'm not just going to tell you what the confession says. I'm not even just going to say, oh, here's, here's, a, here's a proof text that I can point to. I'm going to walk you through and demonstrate that I believe what the confession is saying about the law is what God's word says about the law. And so it's something that, that we, we need to hold fast to. And what I hope it does is, for those of you that may not have that kind of right in your head, I hope that it gives you a greater understanding when you're reading God's word. When you read commands in the Old Testament, for example, well, how do you filter that through? To how do I apply that in my life today here in 21st century America? Right? If you don't have a framework for understanding that, it's just going to be fuzzy and confusing when it comes to those things. So let me pray for us, and, and then we will hop in. Father, I do come in the name of Christ again. Lord, I ask for your help. Lord, give me grace in the speaking. Help me to speak with clarity. Lord, help me to speak faithfully in what your word says about your law. Lord, I pray that each one of us, Lord, the misconceptions and the things that we come to in relation to your law, that you would help us to check those things at the door, and you would help us to be committed, Lord, to the same view of the law that your word has, the same view of the law that Jesus had, the same view of the law that the apostles had. Lord, I pray that you would give us, Lord, not just grace in the hearing, but the grace in obeying those things. Amen. All right, so, as we go through these first five paragraphs, I just want to give you kind of the, the 40,000 foot overview to, to show you where we're going to kind of help you maybe track along as we get there. So when we, in paragraph one, what we're going to see is we're going to see God's law given to Adam in the garden. Then we're going to move to, chapter, or to paragraph two where we're going to see God's law given to Mount Sinai in the form of the Ten Commandments as a part of the Mosaic Covenant. And paragraph three is going to be an explanation of the ceremonial law that was given as a part of the Mosaic Covenant. It was basically given to, to national ethnic Israel so they would know how God was to be worshipped as a part of the Old Covenant. In paragraph four, we're going to get to an explanation of the civil law, the judicial law under the Mosaic Covenant. And what we're going to see there is that that was basically a case law application to that culture of how you apply God's moral law to the civil sphere. And then in paragraph 5, we're going to get an explanation of God's moral law, which is binding on all peoples of all time. So we're, we're going to flesh all those things out, but again, I, I kind of wanted just to paint the big picture in your mind to be able to help you um, fill in those gaps along the way. So paragraph 1 says, God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written in his heart, and a specific precept not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By these, God obligated him and all his descendants to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised life if Adam fulfilled it, and threatened death if he broke it. And he gave Adam the power and the ability to keep it. Genesis 1.27, we see, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. So, what we see clearly is, man is made, imago dei, man is made in the image of God. We see 
in the scripture tells us that, that man was made upright. Ecclesiastes 7.29, Solomon says, See this alone I found, that God made man upright. But they have sought out many schemes. So we started out upright, but now we have sought out many schemes, many things that are not good. And so it's not just Adam and Eve, but it each each one of us as humanity is also an image bearer of God. A part of what that means is that we have God's law written upon our hearts. We heard this in our scripture reading in Romans chapter 2. Here's verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Sam Waldron says this about this text. He says, the implication of this is obvious. If raw pagans are in a possession of the law of God, it can only be because that law was written in the heart of Adam at creation and has not been effaced even by the fall. The confession describes this as having the law of comprehensive obedience written on Adam's heart. So, so we have this, this moral law written upon Adam's heart, but we also have positive law given to Adam. We talked about this when we went through that series on the law. Of, well, what is positive law? Well, positive law is, is one that's not intrinsic to righteousness. It's not something that, that's inherently right or wrong. It only serves a temporary purpose purpose in God's plan. So an example of that would be circumcision in the Passover or in the New Covenant, baptism in the Lord's Supper. We wouldn't know as Christians, hey, we should be baptized unless God actually told us that that's something that we should do out of obedience. So that's a positive law. There's nothing inherently right or wrong about having to be baptized, being immersed in water after you believe in God, other than God has spoken that and told that to us. And so, I just want to look at a few points from some of the past chapters we've looked at that are mentioned here within the confession. In chapter 6, we talked about how God made a covenant of works with Adam in the garden. We saw that there, God had given Adam a stipulation and a consequence. Stipulation was, if you eat of the tree, the consequence was, you're going to die. And so, we, we talked about this. Well, we have this stipulation and consequence. Well, what's the positive side of that? Well, you don't eat the tree and you live. So that, that's what's implied within um, that covenant there in the garden. So if disobedience were to bring death, then we would expect obedience to bring life. In chapter 9, we talked about, we, we kind of walked through sin in redemptive history. And we talked about how Adam, he was able to sin, and he was able not to sin. So unlike us, we're not able not to sin. And so Adam, he was able not to sin. The, the, the confession here in this paragraph summarizes those two truths in this way. It says, God promised Adam, God, God promised life if Adam fulfilled it, and threatened death if he broke it, and he gave Adam the power and the ability to keep it. So what we see here is, the very beginning of redemptive history, that God has given this law to Adam at creation, written it upon his heart, and that's something that flows to all his posterity. So now we're going to turn to the second paragraph, and we're going to
fast forward in redemptive history about 2,500 years and look at the law that's given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Paragraph 2. The same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written on two tables. The first four commandments contain our duty to God and the other six our duty to humanity. And so, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our message today is walking through from Scripture why what the confession says here is true. I know for some of you guys, you've heard all this before. It all makes sense to you. Let this just be edifying to you. I know there's probably some of you here that this just makes your brain hurt, like even thinking about this. It's just not something you've ever really dealt with. And so maybe your head's spinning a little bit and thinking about, man, I'm trying to walk through literally 6,000 years of redemptive history here, and how does the law relate to me, and all those things. And so I hope this week and next week is going to kind of clear that fog and help us to be able to more think rightly about that. So, in this paragraph, we see the assertion that the same moral law that existed before Sinai that was written on Adam's heart in creation was summarized by God in the Ten Commandments written on, written by God's finger on those stone tablets. So, let's return back to our scripture reading. Romans 2, verses 12 through 15. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, we've seen in in the first paragraph, God has written this law upon the hearts of humanity. And in verse 12, what we see is the content of that law. It says, for all who sinned without the law. What law there is Paul speaking of? Well, he's speaking of God's moral law. In verse 15, we see that the work of this law is written upon their hearts. So John Gill says this of this text. It says, though the Gentiles had not the law in form, written on tables or in a book, yet they had the work, meaning the matter, the sum, the substance of it in their minds, as appears by the practice of many of them in their external conversation. And Calvin said, he means not that it was so engraven on their will that they sought and diligently pursued it, but that they were so mastered by the power of truth, but they could not disapprove of it. For why did they institute religious rites, except that they were convinced that God ought to be worshipped? Why were they ashamed of adultery and theft, except that they deemed them evils? So, what they're saying there is, it's not that for us in Christ, what happens is, God writes the law upon our hearts so that we want to obey it. So that's not what happens in creation, right? What it's saying is that that they know, they know the law. That's why they're guilty before God, even without having been given what God's law has in special revelation. Right? So what we see is that when we look out at pagans, what do they do religiously? Well, they build temples, they set aside special days, they they create all these rites and things. Well, why is that? Because within their hearts, they know there's a God and He's to be worshipped. But but it's marred and confused, so they're not doing it rightly. And that's why even when you go out into pagan societies, what do you find? Well, 
most of them will have prohibitions against murder, adultery, things like that. Why? Why is that? Did they just come up with that on their own? Scripture would say no. It's because they're reflecting this image of God, though imperfectly, within their society. They know that these things are right and wrong before God. Two of our catechism questions and answers actually address this issue. So 46 says, What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? Answer, the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. And then 47 goes on to clarify, where is the obedience of faith given in summary form? Answer, a summary form of the obedience of faith is given in the Ten Commandments. And I think this quote from David Jones does a really good job at summarizing all this. He says, in short then, it can be said that the moral law was present before Sinai, at Sinai, and after Sinai. Indeed, the moral law is present throughout Scripture. As a revelation of God's character, the moral law is timeless, unchanging, in the standard by which God judges man. So there we see this truth that the moral law couldn't be other than it is because it's based upon the character of God. Remember we talked about positive law, that it's just because God decided it was going to be that way and not inherently right or wrong. Well, moral law couldn't be any different because it's based upon God and His character. That's why it's abiding on all people of all time. What the confession is not saying is that the Ten Commandments equals the moral law. What the confession is saying is the Ten Commandments are a summary of that moral law. And it's in the same way that the first and second great commandments are also a more summarized version of that moral law. But let's, let's see um, Jesus' view on this. So Matthew 22, verses 36-40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now see Jesus' explanation. On these two commandments depend or hang all the law and the prophets. So we have these first and second great commandments. All the law and the prophets hang on those. If you think of like maybe some of you guys in school made mobiles and things where you have this thing at the top and you're hanging things underneath it. Well think of, think of the law and the prophets like that. You have these first and second great commandments and all those other things are hanging underneath it. And the first things hanging are going to be the Ten Commandments. See Paul's view in Romans 13, verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, here we have Jesus' view. The apostolic view is that we have a summary of the law in these two forms. One, the first and second great commandment, and the other two, the, the, the Ten Commandments. We see the first table of the law, Commandments number 1 through 4. They flesh out for us. What does it mean to love God? How are we to do that? And then the second table of the law, Commandments 5 through 10. Flesh out for us. What does it mean to love our neighbor? Right? It means we don't steal from our neighbor. We don't commit adultery with our neighbor's wife. We don't lie to our neighbor. Right? So it, it's an actual, okay, how do you now love your neighbor? How do you love God? But I don't want you to just hear that, because obviously people that would disagree with the view that I'm saying would have an answer for, well, that's not really what Jesus is saying. That's not really what Paul is saying. So what I want to do is, I actually want to take you through Scripture. 
I'm going to show you each of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to show you each of those Ten Commandments before Sinai. And I'm going to show you each of those Ten Commandments given as a rule of life for the Christian. To show this continuity of God's moral law throughout all of redemptive history. I know for some of you guys, you're going like, duh, of course that's right. But I imagine there's other of you that you may not have ever heard this before. And in fact, you've heard the exact opposite. You've heard the commandments pitted against the gospel. And we're going to get to that more next week. But what I want you to see is that they are not pitted against the gospel. What we have is we have the same commandments given in the Old Covenant are also given as a rule of life for the Christian. But now in the New Covenant, we've been born again. We've been generated. Those commandments have been written on our heart. So we actually love them and we desire to walk in obedience to them and we're filled with the Spirit. And so we actually are empowered to be able to obey those commandments that God has given. And so let's start with commandment number one, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So that's in the center of my chart here. Hopefully you can read it up here. It's in the sermon notes that I sent out in Signal this morning, um, if you can. So let's go back to before Sinai. Here we have the tenth plague in Egypt and the institution of the Passover. Exodus 20, verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. John Gill says this at this verse. He says, God Almighty, faithful and true, and therefore what was threatened should certainly be performed, and thereby the Egyptians and all others might know that he was Jehovah alone and that there is no other God before him. And so God not only declared that there is no other God, God actually enforced that within those command within those plagues right so here we see this this continuity of the first commandment we go to the first commandment as a moral um, as a rule of life for christians first timothy 2 5 for there is one god and there is one mediator between god and man the man christ jesus so the christian ought not to put anything else before the one true god the second commandment exodus 20 verse 4 you shall not make for yourself an idol, nor any likeness of what is in the heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Rewind to go back to Genesis chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all those who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make an altar there to my God, who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So, what you'll see here is that, obviously this is not an explicit statement of the law prior to Sinai, but it's implied. What you see here is that, that Jacob knew that was something that he ought to do to be obedient to God. And that's what you'll see in a number of these cases. Sometimes you have something explicitly stated, and sometimes it's just implied. And you have to ask yourself, well, where were these people before the law given at Sinai, where would they have gotten that from? Well, it's because God laid it upon their conscience, written upon their heart. And so they knew that these things were right and wrong. And now, the second commandment is a 
rule of life for the Christian. 1 John 5.21 Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Pretty clear. There's a pretty one-to-one comparison there, right? And yes, it's true that we shouldn't fashion idols out of wood and, and stone and things and, and put them in our house, right? But the point there is also we have to keep ourselves from trusting, obeying, worshiping anyone or anything other than the one true God. Now, the third commandment, Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Generally, out in Christendom, when we talk about this commandment, we think that we shouldn't speak God's name lightly. But the word here is that we shouldn't take or bear God's name in vain. So, that has much broader implications than just the words of our mouth. What it's talking about is, you are bearing the name of God, so when you go out, your behavior, everything about that should be consistent with this name of God that you proclaim. You proclaim Yahweh to be your God, you ought to be a Yahweh person. You ought to be living as Yahweh is commanded. And so to do otherwise, whether by your lips or by your actions, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. Let's go back to the book of Job. Very early here in redemptive history. We see in Job 1 that Job was the greatest of all the people of the East. He had seven sons and three daughters. And his seven sons used to hold a feast in each one of their houses. So Job 1.5 When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. A long time before Sinai, Job knew that to curse God in your heart was something that atonement had to be made before God for. He knew that that was something that was prohibited. Now, 1 Timothy 6.1, we'll see Here the third commandment is a rule of life for the Christian. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So, here again we see that broader principle fleshed out, right? That it's not just about speaking God's name lightly, but our actions have to also honor His name. And then, don't miss the context here. Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about masters and slaves. Right? I mean, about the most difficult context that you could imagine, Paul says, slaves, make sure that your conduct doesn't blaspheme the name of God in dealing with your masters. So, I think we can say that that should apply to all of us too. If it applies in that most difficult of circumstances, all of our circumstances should be one that we should be able to honor and glorify God so that His name might not be reviled. And now probably the most controversial of the ten is going to be the fourth commandment. So when you look at the fourth commandment, what you see is actually two different components of that within Exodus. You see, first of all, this command to rest and worship God. And then secondly, you see a command to work. And so the first part dealing with rest and worship is Exodus 20, verses 8 and 10. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now, the work component of this is verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So, again, rewind to redemptive history. Go back a few chapters. Exodus chapter 16. So this is Israel journeying out of Egypt before they get to Sinai and are given the Ten Commandments. So Exodus 16, verses 22 and 23. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. Now let's go forward. Let's look at this as a rule of life for the Christian. Ephesians 5.19. Paul gives us his commands related to our corporate worship. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. But here we have a command written to the church at Ephesus, giving them specific guidance of how God is to be worshipped. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 the writer of Hebrews says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good, wo- good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So what we see is that while the form of worship has changed under the New Covenant, God has commanded worship under the New Covenant. I think I, I looked back and I spent five messages on this um, back a year or so ago. And so if you really, if maybe you missed that and you want to find some more information, you can go back and listen, or in a few weeks, we're going to get to that chapter in the Confession where you'll get a more condensed uh, version of my understanding um, of the Sabbath and the Lord's Day and their relation to one another. And then what we see in Ephesians 4.28, But let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We see, okay, as Christians, we're actually commanded to worship God and gather and worship God. And we don't get to come up with our own inventions, our own idea of what that looks like. God has commanded us. That's the regular principle of worship. That's why we don't have goofiness like puppet shows and creative dance as a part of our worship. We believe that God has actually commanded, hey, these are the things that you do to worship me. And God has commanded us to go work. And not just to work to provide for ourselves, But in that text, we see we're actually supposed to work so much that we can provide for others in need. Again, you see this unity of this underlying moral principle of even the fourth commandment prior to Sinai, at Sinai, and in the life of the Christian today. The fifth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 28. This is context. This is after Jacob had stolen Esau's blessing. And Isaac had commanded Jacob to go to Padan Aram and and find a wife there from among Laban's family rather than finding a wife among the Canaanite women. Genesis 28, verses 6 and 7. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So again, 
not explicit in this text, but implied there this commandment to obey mother and father. And now, fast forward to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. We see this command as a rule of life for the Christian. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. You can make a few interesting observations here. One of them is, notice what Paul is doing. He says, this is the first commandment with the promise. So what Paul is doing is he's referring to this commandment that is a part of a group of commandments. Right? So it's not just this fifth commandment. He's saying, this is the first commandment. And he seems to view them all very favorably as something applied to Christians. B.B. Warfield said, the acknowledged authority of the fifth commandment as such in the Christian church is simply taken for granted. And this is, it's very important because there's some people that will say, well, the commandments, some of, well, the nine of them are binding on the Christian because those are the ones they believe that are repeated in the New Testament. So that's their hermeneutic. It says, not binding except repeated. Right? And what we're saying is, no, these are moral commands binding on all people of all time even if the apostles hadn't repeated them, they would still be binding upon us. So you, you look at the way Paul approached these things. Does it seem like Paul is thinking, well, I'm not sure if these Christians in Ephesus would know this, and they wouldn't actually apply it if I didn't tell them. Does that seem to be Paul's hermeneutic? No, what he seems to be saying is, this is obviously binding upon you, and I don't even have to explain why that it is. I can just state it. And, and again, a part of this longer list there. And notice what else Paul does. He actually takes the promise here of the fifth commandment that's given to national ethnic Israel under the old covenant and applies it to the true spiritual Israel under the new. Which it's going to be, That's a whole other hermeneutical discussion there. But I think those are two really um, important things to glean um, from that verse. Now let's move on to the sixth commandment. Exodus 20 verse 13. You shall not murder. Again, rewind, go back to Genesis chapter 9 as a part of the Noahic covenant after the flood. Genesis 9 verses 5 and 6. For your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man, for God made man in his own image. Then, the Christian, Romans 13 verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And just a side note here, what, what's, the, what's the just punishment for murder that we see under the Old Covenant? It's the death penalty. And so, now go forward to Romans 13, this, the same text that I came from. What is Paul says that the civil magistrate's not supposed to bear in vain? Sword. What does the sword do? It's not a it's not a means of chastisement. It's a means of execution, right? And so I, I think you, again you see that consistently. Um, you know, and it happens to be if you guys haven't paid attention, the Roman Church actually just changed their view on this for you know a couple thousand years. Their official position was the death penalty was good. Um, God had spoken it, and now. They actually changed their official catechism to say um, death penalty is bad. It's something that shouldn't be done. And um, I was talking to some of my kids about this. 
Well, how do they do that? Well, it's because they don't have to, this is not their authority. They can honestly just kind of make it up as they go because they have a pope. And so what we see um, when we go um, outside of Romans 13, we see Jesus actually pointing out that hatred of our brother is murder of the heart. And that what and that's not something that's new under the new covenant. He's just pointing out how this is how it always was. Right? And you see that when we get to the Tenth Commandment. Right? Because some people will go, well, the Ten Commandments, they were just about outward obedience. Well, the problem is when you get to the Tenth Commandment, that's really, covenant is really all inward. It's not so much about outward. And so even within the Ten Commandments themselves, they kind of smash that argument. Now, the Seventh Commandment. Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Go back. We have um, here Genesis 39, verses 7 through 9. This is Joseph. After he's sold into slavery by his brothers, he ends up as a servant in Potiphar's house. And he's made an overseer over all of Potiphar's possessions. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Right, so Joseph knew that committing adultery would be sinning against God. How did he know that? Because he didn't have those Ten Commandments yet to tell him. Well, it's because that was written upon his heart. And again, we go back to Romans 13 verse 9 where Jesus says the commandments, you should not commit adultery, so-and-so should be um, summed up, and you shall love your neighbor. And we look outside of that text, we see that Jesus, just as he did with murder, said that, hey, hating your brother is murder of the heart. He points out that lusting after someone is committing adultery of the heart. So each one of these commandments, it's not just about the outward, it's about the inward. Those things are also clearly applied to Christians, not as suggestions, but as a rule of life. The Eighth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. Now let's go backward to Genesis chapter 30. So this, we kind of, I think it was Genesis 28 we were at before when, when um, Isaac sends Jacob out, go get a wife from, from Laban's family. And here what we find is, hey, he only got one wife, he got two um, from among Laban's daughters. And he's had to work 14 years to get those two wives. So Genesis 30, verse 13, so my honesty won't answer for me. Later, when you come to look at my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. What's the problem with stealing? Don't have the Ten Commandments. Well, it's because they knew that stealing was something that was wrong because God had written it upon their hearts. Ephesians 4.28 Let the thief no longer steal. Not a suggestion for Christians, a command to Christians, a rule of life for the Christians. But let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So here, we get a glimpse at the positive side of the commandments, which you'll see when you, if you um, look at the greater context of Scripture. So, when we're commanded not to steal, it doesn't mean we're not just to steal, but we're actually to, to work and provide for ourselves. In the same way that we have the command not to murder, we're actually to protect life and cherish life, right? That's where the case law example of 
putting the parapet up around the rooftop comes. It's a case law application of this eighth commandment, or it's a case law application of the sixth commandment not to murder, right? It's, it's, it's a respecting of life, a caring for life. Now the ninth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. No, go back to Exodus chapter 18. This is Moses following his father-in-law Jethro's advice and setting up the 70 elders to help him rule as a judge over Israel. Exodus 20, 18, verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the peoples as chief of thousands of hundreds and of fifties and tens. So the NASB translate that word trustworthy as men of truth. And so, why would it be important Moses, that we look for men who are men of truth. Well, obviously, to, to do otherwise is, is sinning against God, and it would be really stupid to have dishonest men in authority over other people. Now, let's again fast forward. Let's look at Exodus chapter, or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Here we have um, the ninth commandment as a rule of life for the Christian. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So again, not a suggestion for Christians, a command given to Christians. And interestingly, just to show the continuity of, of these truths within redemptive history, here Paul is actually quoting from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16, where there the prophet says, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true, and make for peace. So again, we see this positive side of the commandments, not only are we not to bear false witness, but we're actually to be speakers of the truth. Now, lastly, the Tenth Commandment. appreciate you guys bearing with me in this. I know it's kind of a lot to take all this in. Um, praise God. So, Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall, covet your na- you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But this one we can go way, way back in redemptive history. Just start at the fall. Genesis 3.6 So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, then it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. What was Eve doing? She was coveting that tree, which led to the fall, the disobeying of God. Now, fast forward. Rule of life for the Christian. Ephesians 5.3 But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So again, not a suggestion for Christians, a command. This shouldn't even be named among you people. You, you shouldn't be coveting. And again, points to the, the whole nature of all of the law being not just a matter of outward obedience, even under the old covenant, but a matter of the heart. So, I hope I've been able to demonstrate to you guys from Scripture that the moral law of God existed prior to Sinai. Clearly you see it at Sinai in the Ten Commandments. And I hope I've been able to demonstrate to you from Scripture that the moral law of God is given as a rule of life for Christians under the New Covenant. The reason I, I, I belabored that point, some of you may feel like, man, that was just too much for me, Pastor, but I tried to belabor the point because so many people are confused about that. And so I just wanted to take you step by step to show you how clear it is, not just 
like speaking of talking points or theological positions. Man, let's just look at what Scripture says. Let's compare Scripture with Scripture and see what we find. John Stott summarizes this well. He says, It's particularly noteworthy that sins which contravene the law as breaches of the Ten Commandments are also contrary to the sound doctrine of the gospel. For the moral standards of the gospel do not differ from the moral standards of the law. We must not therefore imagine that because we have embraced the gospel, we must now repudiate the law. As Anthony alluded to when he introduced our songs for today, when we rightly understand God's law, and we talked about when we went through the law before the different uses of the law, right? One of those is to show us that we cannot obey it. We can't keep the law on our own. And what's that supposed to do? It's supposed to point us to the Savior. That's one of the purposes of the law, is to show us, yes, there was a covenant of works, but we, like all humanity, are unable to keep it, unable to obey that on our own. So what we need is, we need the obedience of another. We need the righteousness of another. So that's the good news of the gospel. So to understand the truth of the law helps you understand the good news of the gospel. The, the law tells us you are condemned before a holy God. The gospel says God has made a way for you to be declared righteous before Him. That Jesus came and lived the perfect law that we, He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He obeyed all those commandments perfectly. Then He went to the cross, took the wrath that we justly and rightly deserve upon Himself. And then when we repent, when we turn from our sins and trust in the gospel, what Scripture says happens is that there's a double imputation that happens. At that point, our sin is imputed to Christ. He paid for it. And His righteousness is imputed to us. And so we get perfect obedience credited to our account. So we start off with this unbelievably negative sin debt before God. I mean, higher than the national debt, whatever it is now, $35 trillion or more, way more than that, we were in debt before God. And Jesus pays for that debt, and not only, and so that brings us up, okay, now we're here. But He not only did that, we get His perfect righteousness credited to our account. So we go from basically having an infinitely negative balance to having an infinitely positive balance before God, and that's how we and be accepted before a just and righteous and holy God. So, next week, I'm going to just give you like a little sneak preview of what we're going to cover, just to kind of let it start rolling around in your mind a bit. We're going to talk about the, the moral and ceremonial and judicial laws of the Old Testament, and how they relate to us as a Christian. Again, this is one of those things that there's a lot of misunderstandings about, even within um, the professing church today. What we see within those that, that division of the law, I'm going to show you next week, and again, I'm going to take some, I'm going to try to be very painstakingly diligent in showing you that those divisions come from Scripture. It's not made up by man. We're going to look and see those divisions in the Old Testament. We're going to see those divisions in the New Testament. We're going to look back in church history. We're going to go all the way back to Irenaeus in the second century and see this division of the law posited in the church. It's not some kind of new invention of man. But what we have to understand is that when we look under the Mosaic Covenant, all those divisions, they were all applicable to that people, to national ethnic Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. They were all binding upon them. But then, when the Old Covenant passes away, in the inauguration of the New, that's when things change. What happens is that we're going to see in paragraph 3, we have the ceremonial law 
there were all these typological ordinances that pointed forward to Christ. So what happens when the anti-type comes? Well, the type passes away. They're fulfilled. So they're no longer binding upon Christians. And in paragraph 4, we're going to see the judicial law, which I mentioned earlier. The judicial law is this case law saying, okay, how do we flesh this moral law of God out within a society? And so what we have is we have specific case law in Scripture that shows us, okay, here within this context, here's how you work those things out. The, the, how does equity and justice, um, how does God see those things working out within a society? And so those things are no longer binding upon us as they were binding upon national ethnic Israel. They're now binding upon us in their general equity or their underlying um, principle of justice. And then in paragraph 5, we're going to see this moral law that's binding upon all people of all times. That's kind of what you got today, is you, you see this continuity of the moral law pre-Sinai, the moral law at Sinai, and the moral law in the life of God's people today. So, what I hope is that this has, if you were kind of foggy about this before, I hope that it kind of brought some clarity, provides some structure for you um, to help solidify your understanding of God's law. And more than that, I hope what it does is, it lets you be like that blessed man that we sung about in Psalm 1, that delights in the law of Yahweh and meditates upon it day and night. When you have a right understanding of it, 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 it much more enables you to delight in and understand it and to be able to meditate upon it. So let me pray for us and then we're going to have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law. Lord, I pray for each person in this room that we would be able to be like the psalmist, that we would be able to, to sing praises of your law, that we would be able to delight in it, in our inner being. But I pray that you would give us a greater understanding of how to apply your law in our lives individually, in our homes, within this church, and within our nation. Lord, as I mentioned, there's such confusion about these things, but Lord, in so many areas, your law speaks with such clarity that we just need to be faithful in obeying what you have revealed to us, rather than wondering about some of those more difficult issues. But I pray that you would give us grace, Lord, as we continue the study next week, that you would grant us clarity in this area of your law. And I pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory.